Hey folks, there has never been a better time to learn banjo online through video lessons. And the best game in town is Peghead Nation, one of our sponsors. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll be able to learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction with some of these courses. Check it out. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, they're all going to come with high-quality, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation, plenty of tab, play-along tracks, and tunes and songs for you to learn. Perhaps best of all, if you join any of these Peghead Nation video courses now, you'll get your first month free just for being a Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast listener. So just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. Another sponsor of the show is GHS Strings. We banjo players know that a banjo is only as good as the quality of strings that you put on it. And GHS has a long track record of providing the top quality in banjo strings to some of the top industry professionals, such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, and me. I'm a GHS user. So check them out at ghsstrings.com. Now, if you ask me where I go to purchase my GHS strings, that answer is simple. It's the same place that I go for all of my banjo, guitar, and any other stringed instrument needs. It's Elderly Instruments here in Lansing, Michigan. They've been family-owned since 1972, and it's the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage instruments and all the accessories and strings that you might need. Now, if you aren't close enough to Lansing, Michigan to visit them in person, you can also see their entire inventory online at elderly.com or feel free to give them a call to speak to a knowledgeable salesperson at 517-372-7880 or once again, see what they have at elderly.com. And now on to the show. I feel like I'm just kind of getting started with it, and I, I hope to not just like ripping off Earl Scruggs licks, but thinking about how to approach Clawhammer in a way that does elevate melody and improvising. It's not just playing the tune over and over again with subtle variations, but really thinking about um, some of those improvisatory themes that you hear in bluegrass and jazz. Hey folks, welcome back to the Picky Fingers podcast. Keith Billick here. I hope that didn't throw you for too much of a loop having the sponsor ads right there at the beginning. I was feeling a bit wild and crazy and decided to switch things up a little bit. Something that has not changed, however, is my appreciation for all of you joining me here. I have a great episode for you, but just in case you can't get enough of me... No, of course you can get enough of me, but we're all into this for more banjo content. So I encourage you to track me down on the social medias. I'm on Facebook and there's a Facebook group just for podcast listeners. That's called Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Listeners, fans, and friends, 
join up with that group and, and enter some really cool discussions that we have on there. You can follow me on the Instagram or the Twitter. You can reach out to me directly at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any comments or suggestions or feedback, any of that stuff. Drop me a line. And of course, the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, where you can chip in a small monthly financial contribution in exchange for some really cool prizes, which I will uh, tell you about later. special guest is Brad Kalodner. He is one of the biggest ambassadors for bluegrass and old-time music. He is a radio DJ for Bluegrass Country Radio and Radio Bristol. He produces a couple music concerts in the Baltimore area where he lives, and he is on the International Bluegrass Music Association, the IBMA's Board of Directors. And oh yeah, he also happens to be a fantastic claw hammer banjoist and plays with the Baltimore-based band Charm City Junction, as well as his father, Ken Kalodner, who is a world-renowned hammer dulcimer player. So he is a busy guy, but he is a wealth of knowledge about the banjo and about the music in general. And I really enjoyed sitting down and picking his brain for a while while we were at IBMA, which will explain a bit of the background noise that you will hear through this interview. But it's not too distracting, and I know you will enjoy this interview with Brad Kalodner. from Baltimore, Maryland, born and raised. I've been there my whole life and have a house there and a great community and lots of friends. My family's there, so I don't think I'll be going anywhere anytime soon. Love Baltimore, Charm City, as we like to call it. Right. And I got into playing the banjo when I was 17. I was just about to finish up high school. Didn't really care much for the music that my father was playing all my life. He's a hammered dulcimer and fiddle player. His name's Ken Kalodner. Incredible musician, and I grew up immersed with his music around the house. I had to listen to it whether I liked it or not. He played in a band called Helicon, and back in the 80s and 90s, they were actually on Columbia and toured throughout Europe and North America, playing music from all over the world, traditional music on hammer dulcimer, flute, guitar, sitern. It was a real eclectic band. Oh, dang. And it was, it that was sounds really cool. Beautiful music, and it was really the soundtrack of my childhood. My sister Hillary and I both listened to their music endlessly. Uh-huh. Uh, because it was not only in the house, but we went to their concerts, and uh, it was just the world that we were immersed in. But it was also my father's thing, and it wasn't really like our thing. I was into sports and going to Baltimore Orioles games, and yeah, you got to be rebellious, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, so I was a big classic rock fan, and uh-huh. did the deep dive with my my good pal in high school at the time. We just listened to classic rock station, and whoever could guess the name of the artist first would get a point, and we were super competitive about it. But anyway, um, <laughs> so when I went to uh, this music camp that my father was teaching at in Maine called Metal Arc back in the summer of 2007. So 14 years ago now. Uh And I uh, went to the camp thinking I would just play soccer with the other kids at the camp and chill by the lake and go swimming. And my my dad was like, if you're going to come to this music camp, 
you know, you have to take some music classes. And it was for adults, a camp for adults. And he was teaching Hammer Dulcimer. My sister had been going for a few years. She was playing some fiddle just for fun. Is that an older sister? Younger sister. Oh, okay. And I was a little envious of all the fun she was having at this camp. All right. So went to the camp, enjoyed the, the scene, just being around these other folks around this incredible music scene there. And uh, took a banjo class with Richie Stearns, a great claw hammer player yeah. out of Ithaca, New York. And I didn't know who Richie was. I didn't really know much, frankly, about what the banjo was about. Uh-huh. I didn't know there was bluegrass and claw hammer, old time. I didn't really understand those differences. I just listened to my father's music. It all kind of sounded, it didn't sound the same, but I could tell there were differences between the songs they played, but I didn't know anything about the genres or where all the different music styles originated. Was banjo part of the mix of uh, your dad's band? At some no, point? there was no banjo in the band. They, mm-hmm. they seemed to have everything else covered. They had fiddle, guitar. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> there was some mandolin. Um, they didn't have an upright bass, but um, there, was, there was definitely, they played a bunch of old-time tunes in their sets. They played some bluegrass. Um, and they, there was certainly very close to banjo music, uh-huh. but I don't think they actually had banjo in their band. They, they played some shows over the years with other bands that occasionally had banjo players. Yeah. Um, but it just wasn't anything that clicked with me until I went to this camp and actually planned to go to this camp and was going to take the easiest classes. I was planning to take the singing class or what I thought were the easiest classes, yeah, yeah. singing, penny whistle and harmonica. And the penny whistle class was full. The only other choice was the banjo class. I was like, ah, why not? I'll, okay. I'll sign up for this banjo class with this guy, Richie. He did a Johnny Cash song on Clawhammer banjo. I didn't even know it was called Clawhammer, but I heard I was a big Johnny Cash fan from listening to all these classics and, and classic rock kind of. And um, so I heard him doing it in the uh, the staff concert on that first night right. of this camp in Maine and uh, thought, oh, Johnny Cash on the banjo, that's pretty cool. I, I, like, right. uh, I like his music. So I signed up for the banjo class with Richie, totally Clawhammer from scratch class. I actually borrowed one of Richie's banjos and it had a goatskin head with the fur still on the head. And I was thinking, what in the world is this creature that I'm holding in my hands? This is pretty funky. And uh, learned how to do the very basic bum ditty on the banjo. Just, you know, that first week I could only do this. And it it was the feeling of that right hand hitting those strings and like the tension of the strings. I just remember how it felt so cool in my hands. Mm -hmm. And it was so different than what I had associated the sound of the banjo with when I was younger. I didn't think much of it, but um, I, I suppose I was more familiar with like the three-finger style, which I love and, and play a little bit of, but um, something about the way Clawhammer felt in my hand, particularly the right hand, like the way that my hand was sort of shaped to do that Clawhammer yeah. bum ditty motion just really appealed to me. And then came home and told my parents like, hey, I, I like that week of playing banjo at Metal Arc. Um, anybody you know have a banjo? I, I, I think I'd like to keep working at it. And uh-huh. that's how it got started. I, I don't know if that sufficiently answered the question of how I'm a banjo player all the way up to this point, but at least that's how it got a banjo in my hands. It sounds like it, it was probably pretty a pretty important factor that you were able to hear Richie play music that was accessible to you to totally. get you excited about it before you even went in. Do you think that was a pretty... Maybe it would have happened differently had you had you not had that uh, connection. Yeah, it's you know it's hard to know. I, yeah, if he had played you know Cotton Eye Joe or like some classic old time yeah. tune that didn't really connect with who I was as a seventeen year old and what I was into at the time, you're right. Maybe that wouldn't have resonated. There was some luck, I suppose, being that that was like one of the only classes that had any space in it, and you're supposed to take three classes, so there was some of that. But yeah, I think you're right. Um, 
having a connection to music that I was into and was was something that wasn't just my father's music. Uh-huh. I mean, of course, my parents listened to Johnny Cash, but it was something that I had sort of discovered Johnny Cash's music and uh-huh. and and that connected with the banjo. I was like, oh, it's interesting merging of those worlds. I'll give it a try. So certainly. So I imagine after you told your parents that you actually had a good time here, they I I'm guessing they were probably pretty supportive of this uh, interest of yours. I think in speaking to my father and and my my mom and dad both after that time, like looking back, they both were kind of on the sidelines thinking like, wow, is, is he actually like into this? This is pretty cool. But they didn't really like come off at the time like, oh, wow, this is so cool that you're into the banjo. They're playing it cool. I think my, my dad in particular, you know, for all those years, they didn't push music on us. They didn't like say that you had to play uh, some stringed instrument. We, I played cello in the school orchestra, mm-hmm. but I didn't really practice. They, you know, they, they were nice. They signed us up for, for lessons and, and we, we worked on it a bit, but it wasn't something that was at like the center of our childhoods. Um, they didn't you know, send us off to music camps and, and things when we were little kids or anything. And you have to play string band music. Um, so but you knew you knew you had those opportunities available should you right. have have the motivation. Exactly. Or yeah. And I and I think it wasn't until I went away to college. I went to Ithaca College, actually, where Richie lives. And that was just sort of coincidence that I was into actually hoping to be a, a broadcast journalist uh-huh. um, when I went off to college. I had no aspirations to do music or anything um, as a big part of my career as it's turned out to be. But I, uh, it just worked out that I went off to school at a place where there was a great old time music scene and a great roots music scene. And the person who taught me banjo in that first week happened to live there. I ended up taking a couple lessons with Richie and sort of became a, I don't know if disciple is the right word. I, I, I love his playing and, and incorporate a number of his stylistic elements into my playing. Uh, but he's certainly a major inspiration. And so there's a lot of, a lot of pieces aligned to, to, to come together as the, the claw hammer player that I, I grew into. So what were some of those things that you think you learned from Richie that you said are big parts of your style now? I'd really love to, to hear yeah, about those. Yeah, well, so for those of your listeners who don't know his music, he's a very percussive player, like super rhythmic, very syncopated. A lot of claw hammer playing has this um, kind of uh, drony repetitiveness to it that is also very hypnotizing and groovy, and I mm-hmm. love that about claw hammer. It can be super driving, and and there's like a groove that you settle into that's, that's um, very bouncy. And his playing is very improvisatory it's really percussive it's yeah. it's it crackles it has this amazing um it's a lot of kind energy to kind it of, there's a punch over, to yeah. it and yeah. so like a lot of things that he does you know he plays up the neck a lot um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff that he does with the left hand but really it's the right hand doing all these interesting like triplets that he he works into his playing so he'll do these things instead of going like this is sort of a classic run you might do cool little crackly yeah. things. They're really interesting little triplets uh-huh. and they're really percussive. And then he'll also do this interesting like uh, rhythmic syncopation on like the low end of the banjo. Um, like all this cool like left hand pull off stuff mm-hmm. that's so much more pronounced than what you generally hear yeah. with uh, a lot of claw hammer playing, or even honestly, like three finger playing. There's so much of this, like slapback of the instrument. That kind of stuff is just so that like really stuck out to me. Uh-huh. Um, and then all these like wild runs, where he'll just go. 
<laughs> you know, it sounds so ridiculous to do it by itself, but if you're, if you're soloing or improvising, yeah. um, you know, that's something that really stands out because there aren't too many claw hammer players out there that do a lot of improv. I mean, there's definitely improvising and variation in a number of players approach, but, you know, taking solos, like a three minute solo in a song on claw hammer is something that he does. And that was really appealing to me. I was like, oh, wow, this goes well outside the AABB form. What's this about? I feel judged right now. <laughs> Keep walking. <laughs> well, that was something I, I really wanted to get to, but we could we could go there now. It was um, something that I really noticed, at least about your your new album, is that there is a little bit more of that bluegrass mindset in terms of there are solos being traded on and off, and that's not quite as common with old time music you think that uh is maybe traced back to yeah it might go back to richie certainly some ideas i can trace back to his playing i think a lot of it honestly has to do with um the music that i play in the band charm city junction so i play yeah. in this quartet with a great bluegrass fiddler uh patrick McAvenue, yeah. and he's uh won the ibma fiddle player of the year award he's played with Dalian vincent and on the grand Ole opry a lot yeah, i'm just like so thrilled one of the best get, yeah he's a, a very good pal we lived together for a few years in baltimore and we play together and he's sort of a musical brother at this point and we come from different musical backgrounds like he grew up playing bluegrass and bluegrass fiddle and he plays some jazz and and can kind of just play anything but i uh i really i think was exposed to that style that approach to fiddle tunes through playing with him and and being in a band where he we're really and, and along with our accordion player Sean McComiskey and our bass player Alex Lackelman, we're really pushing each other to sort of be featured at various points in the band. It's not like we are just a string man that plays a fiddle tune and just drives for three minutes and then on to the next fiddle tune and then here's a song and then another fiddle tune. It's really all four of us taking leads, taking the opportunity to play the me melody and be featured. And so I think over the years, really working with that band, uh, finding all kinds of new ways to sort of pop out and elevate the instrument in a way that isn't just accompanying the fiddle or just playing background um, and not just backup. While I do love playing backup, one of my favorite things to do is to crash a bluegrass jam and, and play claw hammer <laughs> backup licks, you know, those like Scruggs licks that you can you hear on three finger, but the... Uh, those kind of things uh -huh. which are super bluegrassy and and even yeah. on the new record i have this like foggy mountain special or whatever it is I'm running out of space there but yeah, yeah and, the, it, and get, then you do the lester flat part a little bit too, yeah, you know, yeah a little those, you yeah. mean that, that like right, the G right. runs, yeah. yeah, the G run solo. <laughs> yeah, there's like no reason why those licks like don't work on claw hammer. And so, being a big fan of three finger playing, it's been a lot of fun to as I've gotten into bluegrass through playing with Patrick and just going to bluegrass festivals with that band. Mm -hmm. um, I was really immersed in the old time music scene, going to festivals like Clifftop and Mount Airy, and and I love playing straight ahead old time string band music. But the creativity and the improvisatory side of being around bluegrass music and going to things like IBMA and playing at all these bluegrass festivals as a claw hammer player, hearing all these three finger players, I figured, well, I could spend the years that it takes to learn three finger adequately, or I could just like skip and see what I can do on claw hammer. Uh -huh. And it's a fun new world. I mean, there, it's, it's, it feels so fresh, you know, to hear 
like the claw hammer approach on, but with like the stylistic elements of three finger. It's really, right. it's, it's, I feel like I'm just kind of getting started with it. And I, I hope to on a future album or a future project, like even dig in further to that kind of, not just like ripping off Earl Scruggs licks, but kind of thinking about how to approach claw hammer in a way that does elevate melody and improvising. It's not just playing the tune over and over again with subtle variations, but really thinking about um, some of those improvisatory themes that you hear in bluegrass and jazz. Well, I'm already looking forward to hearing that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, bridging the that divide, I guess you could say. Uh, so it, it sounds like you improvise quite a bit. Why do you think that that is not too common, at least with claw hammer playing? And then part, you know, part two of that question would be like, how do you work on improvising and, and what do you think you did to make that part of your uh, repertoire? Well, I think the nature of old time music being that it is dance music and it's really, in, I think its earliest intentions are to, to provide a bed for a square dance or for clog, you know, cloggers, flat footers, you know, it's, it's that driving groove that doesn't stray too far from the melody that allows you to stay focused on the collective groove as a band. It's not really a performance style where you have different people stepping forward. And so I think with that, the improvising that happens in old time music, I generally say to folks that there's just as much improvising in old time, but you're, you're sort of dancing around the melody. There's subtle variations. It's not like you're, you're taking the, the stage and, and taking a solo that really deviates from the melody. Yeah, a lot of times in bluegrass, it feels like the improvising is based around the chord progression as much as it is around maybe the melody of the song. Mm -hmm. And in old time music, a lot of the improvising is, is, is sort of the subtle you know, peaks and valleys that you can kind of dance between within the melody. And so it's, it's sort of a, a different approach to improvising. And, and really when I play in an old time jam, I'm improvising all the time. Like every time through the tune, I'm playing it a little differently. And there's uh -huh. subtle things, you know, maybe do a slide here, or a hammer on there, or maybe go up, you know, to the third instead of the root or just the, the little variations within the tune yeah. that can provide that tug and pull, that call and response that you hear between the fiddle and the banjo. But I think, in, in old time with claw hammer developing with the, the groove of the fiddle, it's really, um, you know, a conversation between those instruments rather than, you know, somebody just playing backup while you step forward. And of course, there's all kinds of nuanced approaches to improvising in bluegrass as well. I don't mean to paint with too wide of a brush and overgeneralize, mm -hmm. but I think you don't hear it as much in old time because I think just the nature of the music is that as a collective group as a cohesive groove you're really not trying to steal the the limelight too much and it's it's more yeah. about you know the, the the community approach as opposed to the performance style yeah that's a really good point i'm glad you said that because the just saying improvising you know you think of someone going wild with triplets or something like that but there's there is a lot more to it so i'm glad yeah, yeah, I mean, like, that, just that, to, that rings true to hear what you said about it being yeah, more of a... and just to demonstrate, like, here's a tune called Fire on the Mountain. And, you know, like, the first part, if I were just play the basic tune, would be something like this. So that's just, like, the first little line. But, you know... You know, like that subtle, you know, three right. times through, I know I'm, it, 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 they're really tiny variations, but to me, that's like just as satisfying creatively as it is for me to just, you know, do something where it's the same, you know, chord progression. Or and those are all the same amount of time, you know. 
where it's it's not really the melody anymore. Like I could have just done those three licks over that first chunk of the tune, and it would have worked in the context of the chord progression, but it's it doesn't necessarily capture the essence of the melody anymore. So it's just, a, I think yeah. it's just a different approach to improvising. I don't think of it as like Clawhammer players don't improvise. It's just a different approach to improvising. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know, what tools do you use to improvise? It sounds like you've maybe tried to take that next step to not leaving the melody behind per se, but do do a little more of like solo playing rather than uh, yeah. be part of this group. Well, uh, I mean, I will admit there are definitely some licks that, you know, I'll work in there, you know, <laughs> and I think a lot of people have their, their kind of like go-to patterns that they play when they're improvising. Um, I definitely, you know, I'm trying to reference the melody as a means to sort of provide an outlet for those those licks but going beyond that i don't know i mean i guess it really just depends on the tune or the song i don't know if i have like a specific methodology to how i'll improvise in a in a song or a tune i mean of course i'm trying to replicate the melody to a certain extent but it you know i think like for me i feel like i'm such a I want to be an interactive player as much as anything. Like I, I like stepping forward and taking solos and stuff, but I think mostly I get joy from the the interactive nature of the music and and hearing somebody play something on the fiddle or guitar and then trying to echo that bass run right. or echo that run they did. You know, so I think a lot of times my improvising is informed by what I just heard somebody else in the band do or somebody else I'm playing with, maybe even a vocal inflection, some kind of change in their voice, you know, some variation of one note, mm -hmm. trying to like chase that. I, I think I would, I feel like as an improviser, I'm, I'm commonly listening to what the people around me are doing and then I'll kind of echo or capture what they're, they're doing. And, and, and just, to, just so that we, and one of my favorite moments when I'm playing with other people is that like eye contact you make when you both realize that you've played something very similar or that you're trying to chase the other right. person where they've done a little variation and then you immediately play that variation right away. Like that's one of the most satisfying things in life for me when I'm playing with another musician who hears a subtle, you know, yeah. variation that we both did. Uh, it's really satisfying. And, and, you know, some of you out there, you know, many of you are, are banjo players and, and play this music and, and you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, that like subtle eye contact you make occasionally when you're like, I heard that, I got that. Or where you both do the same unexpected thing at the same time mm -hmm. and just had yeah. that, that same musical sensibility the unity of of vision there yeah it's very cool so going back to your college days it sounds like you mentioned that you had a good community of musicians up there at Ithaca was that your first experience of getting to play with groups and maybe even performing yeah that was when I really started to come into this music as something that was not just my father's music but something that was that was mine you know something that I um, could make friends through, and it wasn't just through the lens of my father's musical world. Nothing against it, what he has with his community and his pals, but uh, to make friends by just sitting out on the quad or, you know, going to local coffee houses or shows and meeting other people who are into old-time music. And I mean, I was pretty new. I, you know, I, I, could, I could play, uh, you know, a couple dozen tunes freshman year of college. I wasn't really confident enough to just like show up at a jam and lead some tunes. I, I actually, I also play fiddle now and some guitar and bass, but you know, I definitely play a lot of old time fiddle these days, but I wasn't playing back then. So it was hard as a claw hammer player to sort of make pals in without like a fiddle player, without like a, someone to lead the tunes. Um, but as I went through college, I started to meet some other pals in the music school 
who were interested in old time music and, and some roots music and uh, started to uh, play more with my dad when I would go home on break. So okay. we would uh, we would get together and, and, and figure out how to blend the claw hammer banjo with the hammered dulcimer, um, which aren't instruments that are really paired together very often. So that was a lot of fun to, to find some new um, textures with that combination. Um, so I was playing a lot with him early on. And I had a couple musical pals in college. Uh, there's this great mandolin player named Riley and this wonderful bass player who's now a big name in the bluegrass bass world. Ethan Yojevitz and I oh, overlapped yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah, he's and, outstanding. Yeah, and, and he was one of my, honestly one of my first like musical pals. And we didn't play a ton together, but you know, we'd play some of the, the hits, you know, Big Sioda or whatever. And, <laughs> the hits. And, yeah, <laughs> and we would, we would play at the farmer's market occasionally. Um, those were some of the first people I played with um, you know, in my age bracket, you know, who were into the similar kind of music. This next question or two or three is just completely self-serving. Uh, so you went to school for broadcast journalism, you said. So it, it makes me feel terribly inadequate, not only as a, a banjo player to be around you, but to have you have this, you know, trained um, radio <laughs> awareness. You're doing great. This, so, I love this podcast. I will gush for a moment. I've been listening for a while and I appreciate what you do. You're doing a great job. No thanks. need. No need to feel, yeah. <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd have some tips or like, do you get trained in uh, interviewing when you when you take that course? Yeah, and, oh yeah, and definitely. What are, I don't know, give me a... What, uh, what, some what are some things that you... That, <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified for that. Well, you know, it's a different format. So I host a couple of radio shows on uh, bluegrass country radio and on folk alley. And I, you know, I curate hours of, you know, folk bluegrass roots music. And, you know, I definitely interview bands a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if I have any like tips. I mean, the, <laughs> I think like the one thing that I've, that's a couple of things that are really helpful for me when I'm approaching the music, it may sound so silly, but like spending a good amount of time researching my guests, you know, mm -hmm. in advance, I imagine you've done that. It sounds like you have. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of interviews where I'll show up and, and the interviewer will just not have any sense of like who they're talking to. And, and it, it can be frustrating as an interviewee, you know, when that happens. So, that, yeah. but that's like, you, you're a pro, like you, you've, you've done your homework. And, uh, and then I guess another thing, um, I guess, you know, making sure that um, while I'm interviewing somebody that I'm really listening to what they're saying as opposed to having like my set list. And I appreciate that you don't have like any questions in front of you or no. So for those of you in radio world or podcast world, there's Keith is not reading from a script or looking at any questions or even checking his phone. So that's cool that you're just coming off with these questions, uh, coming up with these questions off the top of your head. Um, but it is those, those two things I think as an interviewer make it a lot more fun for me when I'm prepared. And then when I'm not necessarily following a set script, I'm just like really listening to who I'm talking to. Give it the more conversational. Yeah. And that's, that's what you do on this podcast. And that's, it's great. <laughs> I try, but I, I've also gotten myself, um, up a Creek. So, so to speak, if, um, you know, every once in a while, the conversation might hit a dead end and maybe I can't think of something. So it, sometimes it is nice to have a few notes to rely on just in case. But that is true. I'll, I'll take the compliment and I Even appreciate when I, it. Well, and in that preparation that I do for interviews, I've interviewed, you know, dozens of bands and artists over the years on those, both of those, well, on Bluegrass Country Radio. And uh, a lot of the times there's music interspersed between each each little bit of talking. So if I ever run out of something to say, say, what do you want to play next? Let's hear another song. That's a, that's an easy thing, but that's a different format. So Perfect. it's not really applicable here, but yeah, no, this is, this is great. 
Okay, folks, we'll get right back to the interview, but I wanted to remind you that this show would not be possible if not for the support of my beautiful, lovely patrons of the podcast. You can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and it only costs a couple bucks a month to get in on some really cool rewards, which you can read about there. Today's very special Patreon supporter of the show is Angel Rogers and her son Braxton. Braxton has been laser focused on playing the banjo since hearing it on the Beverly Hillbillies, Andy Griffith, and Hee Haw. And since then, he's just been sponging it up as quickly as possible, taking lessons from Gary Biscuit Davis. So, Braxton, it sounds like you're on a good path. Good luck on your banjo journey, and I'm happy to be a small part of it. And thank you, Angel for supporting not only Braxton, but this podcast. One of my favorite parts of the Patreon rewards is the VIP Lounge, which is a monthly video meetup with me and your fellow listeners. This month's monthly VIP meetup is going to be February 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So I hope all of you Patreon supporters can join me for that. And for the rest of you, there's still time to sign up to be able to get that video link for this and all the future video meetups. So once again, head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and become a supporter of the show yourself. I really couldn't do it without you. So what came next? Then you, you moved back to the Charm City. Did that band start pretty much right after college then? Yeah, so I had recorded a, an album with my father while I was in college called Otter Creek. It had some original tunes and, and so I was getting into the world of doing this not as a full-time thing, but I was starting to yeah. approach with all the lessons I was teaching and some of the concerts with my dad and our recording. Um, we started to work on a new album and in 2013 and then I met up with Patrick, who I mentioned earlier, and Sean, the accordion player in our band, at a local jam. There was an Irish pub in Baltimore called Liam Flynn's Ale House, where um, my dad and I actually were hosting an old-time jam every other week. Mm -hmm. And there was also a bluegrass jam on the opposite Tuesday. And every Wednesday at this same pub was an Irish jam. And so I just popped into one of those jams and met Patrick and Sean and just chatted with them about... You know, the fact that we're both similar age, we both play traditional, we all play traditional music, but we don't really play the same genre. And we were just thinking, let's just get together and have a jam and see what it's like. My dad and Sean's father, Sean McComsky's father, Billy, legendary button accordion player, he actually played a lot with my dad back in the day because my father plays a lot wow, of small Irish world. music. Yeah. yeah, this is a classic Baltimore <laughs> thing. In Baltimore, we call it small tomorrow because small. people stay there, they grow up, they stay there, they they dig into the community. It's It's crazy uh, how often that comes up when I'm in town. But anyway, uh, so Sean and Patrick and I got together, started playing some tunes, and it was a lot of fun, you know, to, to figure out, okay, how can we blend button accordion, climber banjo, bluegrass fiddle? There was more overlap than we were expecting. Um, we were all very m uh, melody-oriented, very tuneful in yeah. our approach, um, and listening really well to one another. And so um, we were each giving each other space musically to kind of figure out what to do with this unusual combo. My buddy Alex Lacomont, bass player who was living in Northern Virginia at the time, I met at Clifftop a couple years earlier, invited him up to play with us mm -hmm. just for fun. And that was when the quartet was born. Trump City Junction formed in the winter of 
2013, we played a couple of gigs because we realized, hey, this is a cool sound. This is really unique. Never heard anything yeah. like it before. Um, we have a lot of fun just hanging out with each other. So let's give it a try. And uh, played some shows, thought about recording an album because we all had already played with other people, had already recorded albums with other bands. So we were already kind of on the, we had some of the tools to form a band mm -hmm. and pretty quickly came together, recorded a record on Patuxen Records, which is a label outside of DC. And then, uh, you know, came to the IBMA conference. That was kind of our big first time out in public as a band in front of presenters. And that was a huge launching point for the group back in 2015. I think it was the fall of 2015. Yeah. So it was, it was, that was actually going to be my next question is how did people take that slightly unusual blend? I know, I know some people are traditionalists enough that they, whatever, they might think it's weird, but it's, well, it sounds like it was okay. I think the traditionalists have a, a louder voice, an outsized voice than like the number of them who actually, uh -huh. you know, I think a lot of people are willing to give it a chance when you say that it's, you know, like Clawhammer old time banjo, like the roots of bluegrass combined with, Irish music, which is like the roots of old time music. And then our bass player uh, comes from like a jazz and classical background, which you could trace back even further. So there's a common thread between those styles of music. It's not like we're just lumping together four seemingly random styles of music. Um, so there is a thread. So when you hear it, it sounds kind of like old time music. But then if you come from like an Irish music background, you're like, oh, that's kind of like Irish music. And so it's funny because whenever okay. we play a festival or a gig, people say, we love that old time band, Charm City Junction. And then the next festival to say, here's a bluegrass band, the <laughs> right. best bluegrass band in the town, you know, and then it'll be like, they're such a great Celtic band, you know, so the people don't even like they just kind of assign whatever they think it is to the band rather than us kind of projecting like we're an old time band or we're a bluegrass band. It's we kind of leave it up to folks to figure out what we're going for. Um, you know, of course, I imagine the, it expands the range of festivals and bookings yeah, you, can, I mean, you we, can look at. Too. Yeah, we've played some very straight ahead bluegrass festivals and it's it's something that it doesn't, you know, we aren't necessarily bringing in like the uh, drums or electric guitars or things that kind of are repellent for some folks for some reason, but that's another conversation because um, I love all that stuff. But yeah. it's uh, usually folks are really receptive because we are playing traditional tunes. You know, we'll play like old time tunes mm -hmm. that are real like standard old time tunes um, or we'll play a couple bluegrass songs and, you know, three part harmony singing is recognized. So there are elements of it that are really palatable, I think, to those respective worlds. But yeah, of yeah. course, they're always traditionalists, but, you know, whatever. We, we're, we're very happy with the creative process and how we approach the music as a, a cohesive unit. We aren't like trying to say this one's an old time tune and we're going to do it all old timey. And here's a blue. We've never really told each other as a band, like we, we, I mean, we're, we're, we kind of have our own creative input, you know, collectively. It's just the band sound. Yeah, it's just the band sound. It's not like we're yeah. trying to copy or go for anything specific. Talk about your composing. I've been really enjoying your new album, Chimney Swifts. Thanks. And, um, you know, you mentioned bringing a lot of your compositions to the to the band as well. Do you have a specific approach or anything you, you can share about wh where those tunes come from? They're, they're just real nice and catchy. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I don't carve out enough time probably to write tunes, but I do find that it's in those moments in between other engagements where I feel like my mind is clear enough to write a tune. So, for example, if like I have a lesson planned and a student doesn't show up, that's like the prime time to write a tune because I had already oh. blocked away the hour. And so I'll go into my backyard or front porch. And instead of like checking emails or doing other stuff around the house, like that's 
like I always view that as an opportunity to go ahead and try something out and just say, well, I reserve this time. So I, which really means that I should just give myself more time to like write tunes. But, you know, I think a lot of tunes come from little melodic nuggets that I just come up with while noodling on the banjo. I don't necessarily have like a specific process. I think uh, I find myself in nature a lot or outside when I'm writing Hmm. tunes. Very rarely do I write a tune like in my, you know, in my dining room or in my office where I teach my lessons or, you know, anywhere I'm near my computer. I feel like that's just like I just shut down my tune writing ability because it's just there's it's too close i'm like oh i need to send off this email or isn't that pathetic how distracted we get we all it takes is one little ding from your stupid device yeah your your attention is just torn away so i'll I'll walk over to this little uh creek that's near my house uh called stony run which actually i ended up writing a tune called stony run it's the title track of the last album i did with my father and so i find spots around my house um, or outside of my house where I'll go and sit for a while and, and come up with a melody or a tune. And, and that's why a lot of the tunes I write um, have nature-themed, you know, Stony Run. Or on the album, there's Chimney Swifts, which are about these birds that are behind my house. Or Catalpa Hop is this named after a tree that's in my front yeah. yard. Um, Ants in the Honey Jar is a tune I wrote on the record, and that's a reference to being at Clifftop and like sitting out in the woods and seeing these ants like crawling into this open honey jar. I don't know. So a lot of the tunes are uh, written or at least inspired while I'm out in, in nature, sort of away from technology. And, and just it just feels more like I'm just, it's just me and my banjo. Uh-huh. Along the lines of talking about the improvising and the trading of, of solos, some of those tunes are also not quite as traditional in the way that the chord progressions will shift a bit. You know what I mean? There, there's um, there's just more color in some of the changes. And I want to say it's the Chimney Swift's track in particular, mm. although I'm really bad with titles of, of instrumental pieces, so forgive me if, no, I'm, you know if I'm wrong. Yeah. Is there anything to say about that, about where where you where you get those ideas and how they develop? I think one thing that's so interesting about Clawhammer banjo, the the wide range of tunings available. You know, I think a lot of three finger players usually play you know standard open G. Maybe they'll do like a double C tuning or you know I guess standard C like dropping the D down to a C on the fourth string. But besides that, I'm sure there are other tunings that three finger players use. But that seems to cover a lot of it. Yeah. But in Clawhammer world, there are probably seven or eight different tunings that I'll use regularly. You know, there's open G, there's double C, there's this great tuning called Sawmill, which is you know you think of like Shady Grove or some of those like the Cuckoo, some of those kind of haunting banjo tunes. Those are usually in that sawmill tuning, G, D, G, C, D. Um, and then uh, there's this one tuning, and I guess I can go to it real fast. Maybe it'll be interesting for all your uh, Picky Fingers listeners to hear me <laughs> retune to this crazy tuning. But this one's called um, Open D. So I take my G down to an F sharp, and then, and you can obviously edit this out if it's really dull to listen to. So I leave my D there. And that goes down to an F sharp. And that goes down from a B to an A. 
And then I've got my first string still as a D. Adjust that a little bit. I've got these wonderful Rickard 10 to 1 tuners I oh, love. Yeah. And like before I've even strummed, you can tell it's this like really gorgeous sound. And it's so interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard this tuning before, but it's it, it's super cool. And and maybe maybe it is the one that uh like is it, is this the, the D that they use for like Ruben? It is. It, yeah, okay, there's, so there, there's a good handful of Okay, of well I'm just making D-tunes. a fool of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. At least for me, this is like this. When I first discovered this, I just I didn't know any like the tunes that you play in this one. Yeah, so is this a, like the Ruben tuning, like Osborne Brothers, like Ruby or some it, of those? I don't know about Ruby, but definitely like Ruben Earl's version of John Henry. There's um, Rockwood Deer Chase is like a a pretty cool okay, one, cool. a Don Stover tune. And there's you know there's there's some others, but so yeah. clearly infiltrating your uh, as a clawhammer player, showing that I don't know as much about three finger no but <laughs> but point taken that that you claw hammerers do need to get around a lot of different tunings yeah. that we that are less common for lots us. of yeah. so this this yeah so i think like the tune chimney swifts grew out of noodling in this tuning so on i could play yeah. for a while but you know it's 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 a super interesting i don't know like having that third as the fifth string note is is so captivating uh-huh. and you know having these funky chords that's you know, what, that's that, what i was trying to, that, to get at all yeah, that kind of yeah. that it's not really dissonance it's just so much color like you said uh-huh. you know that kind of sound or you know uh yeah there's just so much to be had and I think the fact are are all the pieces on that album are they all duets? Uh, mostly there there are probably seven or eight duets, a, a few solo things, and then okay. there are also a couple. There's two tracks that are quartet pieces okay. with uh, all folks who lived at my house at some point. Um, <laughs> Patrick McAvenue playing mandolin. Um, he's also a great mandolin player. Um, there's no fiddle on the record, and uh, I'll get into that in a second. And then there's Alex on bass, and then. Uh, a great guitar player in Baltimore who lived with me for a number of years named Lucas Johani, and he plays guitar. Um, so that group of four of us lived together for a while, so I kind of wanted to reference that with a couple of tunes as that's, that yeah, sort of cool. house band. We call ourselves the Tater Patch Kids because I called my house the Tater Patch in Baltimore, which is a, a common old-time tune. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, we got a couple of tunes as that quartet. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's no fiddle on the album, um, and that's uh, something I just decided to do because I play with fiddlers so much in Charm Junction and with Ken and Brad, uh, we've got a great fiddler, Rachel Eddy, who plays with us. And my, my dad and I both play fiddle as well. Uh, but it, it was important to sort of showcase Clawhammer as a melodic voice and, and, and not necessarily that I, I mean, I love the fiddle and it's, I love fiddle tunes. It's like my favorite thing in the world, but I also wanted to showcase how Clawhammer can be a melodic voice and, you know, your ears just kind of go to the fiddle when you hear it playing a melody. So it, it, not to say that I wanted all the attention for the banjo, but kind of did. Just wanted to showcase Clawhammer. It's definitely a banjo album. Yeah. 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 And that's what I was going for, especially in the depths of the pandemic, needing a creative outlet, like, well, it's just me and my banjo for the past year. So (laughs) might as well just play a bunch of banjo tunes. Right. Well, and to, and to your melodic point even even further on in that tune you you have a nice up the neck break too which i i know from experience in open d is tricky getting that major third to sound right 
up the neck, that can be yeah. that can be a little squirrely. Yeah, you know, and I've definitely spent a lot of time with claw hammer in particular. Go, when I go up the neck, thinking about how to maintain the tension and and the rigidity of both my left and right hand, so that it doesn't get too floppy. Because um, I think sometimes when I'm playing claw hammer it's really like, it almost sounds muddy as you go up the neck. It sounds sort of muted. Mm-hmm. And I've spent a lot of time making sure that, you know, my finger's like right behind the fret, super precise. Um, not to say that this isn't what like three finger players think about as well, but with claw hammer, like the main key with that clarity up the neck is for me maintaining tension in my right hand, you know, which is basically my pick hand. I don't have picks on my fingers. I yeah. just have these long, scary looking fingernails. <laughs> um, and fortunately just happen to have really strong nails and must have had plenty of milk. Drink or a lot of milk. Carrots or whatever <laughs> when I was a kid. But like I've got these these nails and but it's not just the nails, it's it's maintaining tension in my right hand such that it's like almost a firmer pick. Like you'd play on guitar like a soft pick versus like a thick pick, you know. So firm where? Like your finger yeah, joints? So you know your hands in this claw shape with your fingers curled around, your thumbs curled around. So when I venture up the neck, I'm thinking about how not only do I get my left hand to, you know, hit the right fret but like the right hand that's where all the magic is when you're playing claw hammer because you know a lot of claw hammer players kind of within the mix of a band you don't necessarily hear all the details and i'm really trying to be clear and prominent like you hear a three-finger player when they're taking a solo you can hear all the notes and so for me like the main thing with my right hand is that the claw that i use I, i kind of increase the tension in my hand like i just kind of grip that claw a little firmer so you know if i'm playing you know, up the neck, something like, I'll just demonstrate like kind of a loose right hand. Like I won't have too much. It'll just be kind of like a very relaxed right hand. It'll sound like this. And that's, you know, it's pleasant enough, but it's it's not super clear as opposed to, let's see. So, like all those notes and being Mm -hmm. kind of delicate here, but you can tell that, you know, the clarity, all those notes are there. And what I'm doing is with my right hand, instead of, you know, here, I'm just sort of like keeping a relaxed right hand. And then if I increase the tension in that hand, so all I've done is just sort of add a bit of tension instead of, I'm not just, I'm playing softer there, but you know, Like all of those notes, it's not just my left hand. Yeah. And I know I'm really diving into the depths of right hand technique no, for claw hammer. I but, love it. You know, Keep going. But that's that's like that's really how I'm able to when I go up the neck. Um, let's see if I can play a, a tune or something that you might recognize. Um, So, you know, off the cuff there, just kind of thinking about, 
you know, how to make sure that all those melody notes are really prominent and on like a nice even plane and yeah. not popping out or getting too soft, but really thinking super technically about how to maintain that right hand approach in that, you know, the main technique I'm using is, is it's called drop thumb. And, you know, a lot of claw hammer playing is built around this bum ditty pattern. And you could just play that all day, you know. do anything else but as soon as you start incorporating the thumb as a melody note you know you go from let's see what was that tune black grey blossom and then adding in drop thumb Like that kind of stuff, you yeah. suddenly get all this melodic. It's a whole other dimension. And not only to it, that, yeah. but you get all this cool rhythmic stuff that you can do. Um, these really cool syncopated things. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, this is a tune called "Black uh, Black Eyed Susie." Yeah. goofing off here that was like way too many variations for that do that tune <laughs> I was just trying to throw the whole kitchen sink out but you know you get the idea that with this right hand thumb the notes that you leave out it creates all this cool space for all these interesting I don't know it's just so groovy yeah, and funky and funky, it's just man. it's so funky you know and and I'll even just like rip off like Tony Rice guitar I don't know, whatever. I'm just right. totally nerding out here. But yeah, you get the idea that like you can do those melodic things that you hear from like a syncopated three-finger player or like a kind of a bluesy mandolin solo or a guitar solo or something. And like it's totally possible on Claw Hammer. You just have to yeah. figure out how to get the the drop thumb to fit in the right spot and to leave out notes. And and it, I don't know how far down you want me to go the, on this road, but like a huge part of it is also using the percussive nature of the instrument, using the head of the banjo to get all these really interesting textures. You know, you could play a tune. Or you can go. Like, my left hand is right. basically the same there, but I just did this cool, like, you know, head tap thing where it's super open and flowing and it has this really nice kind of cadence to it that's um, not as busy you know as some banjo playing can get and those are all tools that you use just at various times to create the, the different sound that you sonic want. atmospheres is yeah. the fancy phrase i'll use but trying to think about the theme of the song is it a driving up-tempo tune or is it something that i want to have a lot of space and some some of that flowing a mellow side of the banjo. And there's so many different voices you can get with claw hammer using really a lot of right hand techniques, using drop thumb. I call it the ghost drum. This like it 
it's just so pleasant. I could just do that for hours. Uh-huh. You know, that's such a pretty sound. And that's really, I think, what draws me into Clawhammer is that it isn't just the same thing over and over again. It, there's so much textural variety. And, and that's um, great for playing, you know, fiddle tunes up to speed, but also playing waltzes or playing tunes in unusual, you know, time signatures or, or things that are just not what you'd expect just your standard driving claw hammer sound to be, which I still love, but it's there's a lot of versatility in this approach. Yeah. I was going to ask back when we were talking about Richie Stearns, but we'll circle back to that now. Who do you consider some of your other major influences and maybe give, you know, maybe some specific ways that these people mm. have influenced your playing banjo or, or not? Yeah. Well, there's no question that the other major influence of mine is Adam Hurt. playing. I know yeah, he's been too. on your podcast oh, yeah. and uh, just an incredibly sensitive, lyrical player. You know, Richie is also a, a major influence for Adam. I know Adam grew up listening to a lot of Richie's playing and maybe even talked about that on your podcast. I don't recall, but Adam, I know is a big Richie fan, uh, but Adam is such a different player. He's very melodic, lyrical. Yeah. There's a lot of emotion in the playing, really precise. And so I was really drawn to that. I think largely because I grew up uh, around music with my father's band Helicon they are very clean you know they have like this beautiful arrangements great dynamics really interesting sense of harmony lots of variation so there's a lot of subtlety in Adam's playing that I think connected with what I was really appreciating about my okay. father's band and his music and his approach to the hammered dulcimer kind of reminded me of how Adam approaches the banjo yeah. with all these interesting arrangement ideas um, and not just technical prowess but not overplaying and being really precise, but also really musical. And so, you know, someone like Adam, like really clean, but also like there's surprising moments too. And so when I heard his tune, I think he, he does this great version of Big Coyote, which I mentioned earlier, actually. And I heard that for the first time when I was in college, um, listening to a record of his and thinking, whoa, that is so beautiful. It's, I've never heard Clawhammer like that. And so I, you know, went off and tried to learn it and took a workshop from Adam. And in fact, I play a banjo made by uh, the same builder of Adam's banjo. This is uh, made by a builder in D.C. named Kevin Enoch, and it's an open back banjo. Um, although, for those of you out in radio world who can't see it, it actually does have a little resonator on the back. It has this uh-huh. flush fit resonator, which is made by Ohm Banjos, um, who actually met uh, at IBMA a number of years ago, and they built this resonator that kind of fits on the back of the pot that helps project the sound forward. So it's kind of a hybrid banjo, but it's made by Kevin Enoch, and it's the same instrument that Adam plays. What was it about Adam? Just just the whole, kind of the whole package with that guy, really. Just the the lyrical, the sensitivity. The, yeah. The, he's a kind of a virtuoso, too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I think, as I mentioned earlier, that, um, that like really tasteful approach to the banjo and yeah. elevating the banjo as a solo instrument, primarily on his records. The banjo is front and center. It has fiddle on a few tunes, but really... 
and he's a great filler too, but um, having, you know, Clawhammer represented in such a melodic way, it's really mm -hmm. the first time I ever, I mean, of course, there are some great old recordings from some of the legends, you know, Wade Ward and, uh, you know, like Tommy Jarrell and all, all these like great legends of banjo. Who, there are solo recordings of banjo, but in terms of the way that Adam approaching melody on the banjo is that was just mind blowing to me. And, yeah. you know, I'm really attracted to melody and as a Clawhammer player who plays melody a lot, it just is at the time really eye opening when I first heard his playing. Um, and yeah, I incorporate some of Richie's influences, some of Adam's, you know, and then all the other musicians I've met along the way have, you know, little melodic ideas, little backup ideas. Course, I yeah. listen to guitar players, you know, thinking about bass runs, you know, I'm listening to fiddlers and how they use different rhythmic bowings and how to kind of echo that kind of pulse that you hear from fiddlers, you know, in my mm -hmm. playing. So there's all kinds of other instruments that inform how I approach it. But banjo side of things, yeah, Adam and Richie are kind of the two that I, I always sort of can trace back, yeah. you know, my, my origins. Those are good choices. I, I don't know a whole lot of claw hammer players, but I know those two guys and fully agree with everything you said. All right, back to your banjo, the Enoch. Uh, what's the, give, give us all the, the specs. Like what model is this? Um, yeah, it's kind of a custom model in that it's, it's based off of Kevin's, um, he's a, a builder, he's in Beltsville, Maryland, and he builds banjos out of his garage. It's a, he's just a legendary builder in like the old time banjo world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, Adam plays one of his, and I, I took a workshop from Adam 2009, maybe, it's 2010, and just tried out Adam's banjo. I was playing a, a gold tone CB100, and it was a great banjo to start on, and I was looking for an upgrade, played Adam's, and I just loved the response, sort of that, the bell-like tone, especially when I'm up the neck. Um, let's see, um, like, you know, whenever I play up the neck on this banjo, let um, me think of a, a good tune, uh, let's see. Let's see, here's a little, a little bit of a tune called Waynesboro. When I go up the neck on this instrument, it just has this bell-like quality. Sure does. Beautiful notes Sounds up the neck great. that sustain, you know, and it's just, it's so lovely up the neck. And I think that's why I was really attracted to this instrument. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, there's a few variables here. One, it's, it's an 11 inch rim. A lot of Clawhammer players play with a 12 inch rim for that right. kind of more uh, mellow, thumpy sound, which is really nice solo or in a duo context for sure. Um, but for that clarity and that punch that I look for, especially playing a lot of bluegrass inspired music, um, I like to have some punch and clarity. Mm -hmm. And so the bell-like quality of the 11-inch rim combined with the brass spun rim, so there's a brass rim on this banjo. Oh, right. Um, and then there's also the Dobson-style tone ring, which is very bell-like in its sonic quality. So it has a lot of sustain, a lot of uh, ring to it. And then I think this resonator that I have on the back, this flush fitting resonator. And what I mean by flush fit is it doesn't really go outside the rim of the banjo. It kind of fits flush with the rim. So it's the same size as the rim, 11 inches across. 
Yeah, if you look at it from the front, you don't necessarily you don't know it. that it's there. Yeah, but it, it really allows the sound, especially when I'm playing into a microphone. So I, I do a lot of performing. It's nice to have the sound sort of funneled towards who I'm playing for. Um, and then also it just focuses the tone. So it's not like it makes it... Sometimes when I play a resonator banjo, like a normal resonator banjo, it gets kind of muddy um, when I'm playing claw hammer with all the strumming. But this somehow is able to kind of keep the focus of the claw hammer sound but without making it too muddy. Um, and so th those are probably the biggest things. And then the head is really tight. It's, it's a Renaissance head, but I have it cranked up super high. And then I have this little bone insert bridge that adds a little bit more sustain. A lot wow. of claw hammer playing, kind of the decay of the notes is pretty immediate. So um, on this, with having the bone insert bridge, um, it has these little white pieces of, they might just be plastic, but I don't know. So these, these help sustain the tone a bit. Yeah, medium gauge strings, action's pretty low on the fingerboard. And does that gold star sticker help the tone quite a bit? <laughs> have, have you done yeah, some testing right, on that? That's right. That makes all the difference. That's the secret. Yeah, that, that was a thousand dollar little star sticker. <laughs> right, the audiophile yes. grade. <laughs> no, that's, uh, yeah, it's a funny story actually. At, at Clifftop, which is where I really got hooked on old time music, not, not of course, I mean, of you know, being in Ithaca was, was inspiring and all that, but really Clifftop was the place where I really got my like old time music interests cemented, mm -hmm. um, surrounded by thousands of people who just love old time music, staying up all hours of the night playing tunes. It's just so much fun. Um, and so, uh, one night, I don't know, at festivals, I like to, I don't know, it's, I like to bring these, uh, uh, temporary tattoos and pass them out. It's just sort of a fun, <laughs> festive thing. Uh, I keep them in my banjo case. It's goofy and, uh, I'll bring them to festivals in one night. We were just like putting on glitter tattoos, going down to the Cajun tent to dance and then have a late night jam. It's just silly. And so one of my friends actually put the tat uh, glitter tattoo on their banjo head. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, that is a power move just to take that ban that tat the star and put it on your banjo head. And so the next year I actually saw her and she still had it on her banjo a year later. And I was like, you know what? That's impressive. It was a goatskin head too. It was like a nice banjo head. And sure enough, I said, well, it actually looks pretty cool, so I'm gonna put one on my head too. So I put a little, <laughs> this little star, this little gold star on my banjo uh, as a, I don't know, I don't know, a little uh, nod to my clifftop life and how much I love that that festival. Yeah, little something to remember it by. That's cool. And to go back to that resonator thing, I just wanted to. Can I see that a little? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it it actually does have a gap between the back of the rim yeah and it's this uh it's this you know it's this round piece of wood that that does i don't know what the right term is but it does it's not totally flat it does kind of come out a little bit yeah maybe con concave concave or? yeah the resonator banjo speak don't quite have it down but yeah <laughs> so there's there's that um and then it has these posts that have this felt on it so it kind of just fits onto the back of the banjo. I can just slide it on and off pretty easily. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's uh, it's actually really comfortable. So a lot of you resonator players, you know, you're used to having a resonator sit up against your your stomach when you're playing. But for us claw hammer and open back banjo people, we're so used to playing with like the, you know, the, <laughs> getting the, jabbed. Getting jabbed with the with all the uh with all the hooks. And so it's kind of nice actually to have the banjo sitting just another inch off my body. And with these nice, this nice, soft, like, it's just such a more pleasant feeling to have a resonator oh, yeah. up against me rather than like the hooks and the edges of the banjo rim jabbing into me. So, so kind of a win-win with the it's, tone it's and the comfort. Yeah. It's, it's a nice tone. I, 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 uh, I feel like this will be the next big thing in the open back banjo world. It was kind of, it was something that Ohm came up with for one of their banjos, this like clip-on resonator. 
And I just thought it sounded cool on the banjo that I was playing of theirs. Um, I think it was their Mira model. And I thought, well, what if I just like figure out how to get it to fit on my other banjo that I play a lot? Uh-huh. And that's how, and so I've been playing and recording with this flush fit resonator for, you know, three or four years now. It's really comfortable. It, it means that I don't have to play super hard because when I'm in a band with an accordion and a, a bluegrass fiddle player, or a bass player, and also playing with my dad, who's a hammer dulcimer player, it's like a lot of sound to compete with as a claw hammer player. And too often claw hammer gets buried in the mix. So I was like, how do I get some more that's like, helping power you without yeah. like digging in harder? Because then you sacrifice tone if I just have to like lay into my banjo all the time. Um, so, and I do have a pickup in here as well, but it's, you know, when I'm plugged in, but for those times when I'm not plugged in, it's really nice to have that extra oomph. Yeah. I noticed that there's a, there's at least one other really nice sounding banjo on your album that must be mm. like a gut string fretless or something exactly. like that. Exactly. I Is don't have it? it with me, but okay. it's a gourd banjo. It's, a, it's a, a very large head. It's like maybe six to eight inches deep. And it has uh, this big calabash gourd with a goatskin uh, strapped over it, made by uh, a, a banjo builder in Maryland who works a lot with Kevin Enoch, actually. His name's Pete Ross. He lives in Baltimore. He's a neighbor of mine and incredible builder of gourd banjos. And it's a beautiful instrument. I mean, the, the neck is fretless, like you correctly pointed out. And it, it has these nylon strings. Um, it has these geared tuner pegs that look like friction pegs, but they oh, are, cool. they do have little gears in them, which makes my life way easier Heck when I'm yeah. on stage trying to <laughs> go from all like the key of D all the way up to the key of V. And by the way, I keep it tuned low. Uh-huh. So it's down a, a couple steps and that's why it has that really punchy growl to it. Um, it's very tense banjo and it just, it really, it's got a good amount of volume. It cuts through really nicely also has a pickup in it, which is nice when I play on a bigger stage. You have a pickup in a gourd banjo. Yeah, well, it's actually not too different than what like Kora players use. So a lot oh. of like a lot of those West African gourd instruments, um, you know, played on big stages. There's there's a precedent for you know putting a pickup inside like a gourd type instrument. So that's the pickup I have in it is one that you would see like in a Kora or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, the, the gourd banjo was an instrument that I was exposed to. Um, there's a guitar store in Ithaca. I bought a, a gourd banjo that was just hanging on the wall and made by a local lamp maker, a gourd lamp builder in Ithaca. And I was like, mm. that gourd banjo looks cool. I'm going to give it a try. And you know, it's, it's the same setup. It's five strings and it's, you just basically have to learn how to get your right hand to accommodate the nylon string feel, which is a little bit looser. It's a different kind of, it's set sure. up similarly, but it's a different feel and then the fretless um, aspect, and then the fretless course, aspect, yeah. you get all these cool in-between notes. And it's also a really nice opportunity when I'm playing concerts to sort of provide some of the context for this music and old-time music and where it comes from and the really complicated history of this music coming from, you know, enslaved Africans and the roots of the gourd banjo, you know, as it 
evolves into the banjo that we all love and, and play today. So there's, there's an interesting opportunity with that instrument, um, especially being from Baltimore, where the banjos were first commercially manufactured in this country. Um, the first banjo company was in Baltimore, um, right in downtown Baltimore, made by William Boucher back in the mid-1800s yeah, and had okay. a shop right in Baltimore. I didn't realize that was Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so that was really where a lot of the first banjos were commercially manufactured. A drum maker who started building banjo necks to add on to the drums because there was this new popular banjo demand out there. And so that's really how that got rolling. And, and so the, the instrument actually has like a headstock that's modeled after the Boucher headstocks. Um, so there's a nod to Baltimore in that instrument as well. So there's, okay. it's really a... Is that a scroll... Um, yeah, it's got that kind of scroll look. Right, like a, um, a sideways fiddle mm-hmm, They'll headstock. call it like a minstrel style. Yeah. And, and again, it's an interesting opportunity to bring up like the minstrel show past of the band show. And so uh-huh. it's not that I necessarily dive deep into that into every concert, but I think it's sort of, as a performer, I feel obligated and a responsibility to at least mention and allude to and, and inform folks about the history of the instrument and dive deeper if they so choose. and yeah, Plant a seed. Yeah, planting a seed. And I think the gourd banjo, it sounds great. It's fun to play. It's super groovy. I love it. It's super deep and warm and punchy. But it's also, yeah, a nice opportunity to plant the seed about the history of the instrument. Very cool. Is there anything else that we, people need to know about you and your, and your banjo career and journey and style? Well, I think uh, you know, I, I play a lot with Charm City Junction, as we mentioned. We've got a couple of records. I've played with my dad a fair bit. And we have four albums, actually, over the years, combining banjo and hammered dulcimer. And then, um, you know, I have this new solo album, Chimney Swifts. And I guess the other big piece, um, besides the broadcasting element of my career on Folk Alley and Bluegrass Country Radio, is that I host or I, I have an online banjo lesson channel for Clawhammer oh. uh, hosted on uh, this site called True Fire. And I have a, a channel uh, that's much like a Patreon subscription where you, you sign up and every month, you know, I post some new videos. There's, you know, tune tutorials, technique lessons, mm-hmm. tabs, performance videos, exclusive stuff. And it's called Clawhammer Corner. It's on True Fire. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's actually been a really nice thing to develop during the depths of the pandemic, having an outlet yeah. for teaching and having some time to, to craft my approach. Because I do a lot of teaching at workshops and camps and private lessons for years. And so it's nice to be able to have an outlet for that. So I have that online course through through true fire and now you kind of have a curriculum sort of mm-hmm. setup that you'll be yeah. able to use forever. exactly yeah. exactly there's a beginner you know claw hammer from scratch series so for all you who are interested in claw hammer and have a banjo but don't know how to start there's yeah. a beginner series there's also stuff for intermediate and advanced players it kind of covers and goes into the weeds of you know many elements of claw hammer and it's it's growing and mm-hmm. uh that's been a really fun thing to to uh, grow uh this past uh, year or so yeah, you're a busy dude. Yeah, it's I embrace the the hustle and <laughs> love, you know, many elements of the industry and logistics and how things work and, you know, fine-tuning different elements of of my own personal career, but um there's just so many inspiring people who work in this world in this in this, you know, bluegrass and old-time roots music industry and and I'm just a a fan of of learning more about how to really make it more open and accessible and welcoming and, and growing in a way that's sustainable. And I just, I find all those things, those community organizing is another piece of, of what I do. I, I run in Baltimore. I run a, a festival called the Baltimore Old Time Music Festival every year, which is uh, 
um, an annual festival that brings in old time string bands and artists from around the country um, held every spring. Usually we have it, you know, we haven't done it in a while, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we're hoping to do that <laughs> festival soon. You know, depending on when this podcast airs, um, we do have a festival in 21 in the fall and then in 22 in the spring. And uh, that's, that's a, a huge, you know, endeavor that I do with my father really boosting the local Baltimore old-time music scene. And we yeah. do a lot of work in the community. There's a lot of history of old-time and roots music. Even in my neighborhood, Hazel Dickens lived two blocks from where I live now in oh, Baltimore cool. in the Hamden neighborhood. And so there's a lot of history in Baltimore with bluegrass and old-time music. So it's 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 really nice to be able to dig into the scene and help grow the local community through hosting jams and running a square dance and then this festival as well. So I'm really invested in the Baltimore old-time music world. So yeah. that was a very sort of fast description of the many kettles that are on the fire. But yeah, it's... Yeah, a, that's really impressive. It's good, good, you know, best of luck and <laughs> to keep it up. Those are all really great, uh, you know, endeavors to be taking on. Well, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. I know I've infiltrated enemy walls here on this uh, oh, picky no, no, finger, no. three-finger podcast, but uh, not, I know I appreciate that you're giving an opportunity to other banjo players. And, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap in the way that, you know, we approach music, whether you're a clawhammer player or a three-finger player, and, you know, playing in a string band setting, there's so much overlap. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's fun to make like a, a a tribal warfare aspect out of yeah, the three finger versus clawhammer, but it's all in good. It's fun. not. Yeah. There's no. There's no. Yeah. There's no uh, need for that. It's. I'm just playing. But yeah. It's. Uh, and you know, a lot of. I think there's a lot of mutual respect. You know, for three finger players, for oh, clawhammer sure. players, and the other way around. It's. It's really nice to see that, especially now there are so many bands out there that kind of use both. And like three finger is now in more old time music than I've heard in many years. It's great mm-hmm. to hear some three finger. And and I and I will admit, like during the pandemic, I did work on some three finger rolls. I learned my, you know, some of the, the standards. So you know, watch out. Uh-oh, you know, uh-oh. Just give, give me like ten years and maybe. Uh, okay. Well, next year at IBMA, we'll do part part two of the interview. Yeah, and, I don't know if I can promise that. Show off your three finger chops. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Brad. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The song clips that you heard in this episode were Catalpa Hop by Brad Kalodner, Mazurka Limousine by Helicon, Billy in the Lowground by Richie Stearns, Turkey Trot by Charm City Junction, Chimney Swifts by Brad Kalodner, Wake Up Susan by Adam Hurt, and another one by Brad called Old Aunt Jenny. Thank you once again to Angel Rogers and her son Braxton for being the Patreon supporters of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. Everyone have a great week. Take care and I will see you next time.